If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, this will be our text for the morning. Luke chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 38 through 44. We're in the season of Epiphany, thinking about how Jesus has revealed himself to us. And so uh, we went through the season of Advent, uh, waiting and excited about the time when Jesus appears, and then Jesus appears. And now we're going through Luke chapter 4 and 5, where Jesus begins his ministry. He begins to do... um, the very, be- the very beginning of his ministry, what he's up to, and how he's revealing himself to us. So we're going to look at verse 38 here, and I'll read through uh, 44. Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. And he arose, that is Jesus, and left the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. Uh, Simon is also Peter. Jesus renames him later, so Simon, Simon Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he went preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so we have um, last week's sermon and this sermon kind of tied together. They're all part of one narrative of Jesus' activities here. Uh, Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching in the morning, and he's confronted with the demon. He exercises that demon. He goes home for uh, Sunday lunch at Peter's house, and there he encounters Peter's mom, who is oppressed, the text says, oppressed with a high fever. She's very, very ill. Uh, Fevers, of course, were much more dangerous when they didn't have aspirin or penicillin or any of those other things. And so this is actually a relatively dangerous situation. He rebukes the fever and it's gone. And then we have this setting of the sun. The evening comes and the the house is like just, I imagine kind of like, like a zombie movie where like everybody like comes toward the house. There's just this mass of people, not zombies, but sick people, right? coming to the house and knocking on the door and wanting Jesus to heal them. And so we have this big scene where Jesus begins to heal all kinds of diseases, all kinds of ailments, all kinds of sicknesses, casting out demons. This real um, explosion of Jesus' healing power. And if we continue to read through the Gospels, all of the Gospels, really Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them depict Jesus as somebody who has the ability to and often does these miraculous moments of healing illnesses and um, disabilities and demons and the wind and the waves, they obey his voice. And the question that I want to ask us or, or ponder today as we think of Epiphany, why does God reveal, why does Jesus reveal himself in this way to us? What does it mean that he did miracles? What was the purpose of them? Why these things? First, um, it is a validation of Jesus' own ministry and power. 
If you remember the story in Acts chapter 1 and 2, Jesus has died and he's rose from the grave and he spends about 40 days teaching the apostles and, and appearing before 500, uh, Paul says 500 people, and, and, and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then he, he ascends into heaven. There's a 10-day stint of, of nothing really going on. And then the Holy Spirit falls and Peter and the apostles and all of these disciples who Jesus had seen post-resurrection, just explode out into the world and begin to convert just huge bodies of people. This is from Peter's first sermon. He kind of stands up as the representative of the group and he explains to them what mattered about Jesus. Why did they need to repent and to believe in Jesus? And he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And so these miracles themselves functioned as proof of the veracity of Jesus' claim to godness. If you walk around saying, well, I'm the son of God, I'm the son of God, you better have something to back that up, right? I mean, that's a, that's a bold claim. And Jesus backs that up by doing these miracles, by showing them, listen, I am the Son of God. He, he goes, and you notice this throughout the text, he goes proclaiming and preaching and following those proclamations, or sometimes even during those proclamations, as we saw in the synagogue last week, evil springs up, or somebody who is sick cries out, or there's, there's this proclamation of preaching, and then there's the proof of the truth of the preaching via the miracle via the miraculous sign or wonder that's done in their midst. What's so interesting about this particular point is that we still claim to it. Uh, You are sitting in a church right now that believes Jesus did these things. They aren't stories, they aren't legends, they aren't folklore, there aren't tales told to keep children interested. They happened. Jesus healed Peter's Mother-in-law. Jesus healed these people who came. And that's a bold claim, isn't it? And we live in a day and age, um, and, and have been for some time since the Enlightenment period, that's really very skeptical of everything that we cannot prove scientifically. By that we mean that what we can see and reproduce um, through tests, right? And that's the kind of age that we live in. And so we look at even people who are, and I'm going to say well-meaning um, though totally wrong, Christians, call themselves Christians, right, doubt these, these things. And so we have to take very seriously, I think, skepticism. I take it very seriously. How can we know that Jesus did these things? How can we prove anything via a historical text? Well, we have to because, again, we are not with Jesus and we can't reproduce Jesus, nor can we reproduce his miracles in like a test tube. So what do we have to do? We have to look at the veracity of the claim. We have to look at the truth of the text. What does this look like? What does Jesus, I would say, stop here for a second, what does Jesus not do? Jesus is not, according to the story, mix a potion and pass it on to Peter's mother-in-law and have her drink of it, and she gets well again. Now, if you were writing a story in those days and you wanted people to believe your story, you would attach it to something that they're familiar with. What are they familiar with? They're familiar with all kinds of stories of people who could do magic potions. This was things that they talked about. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't whisper incantations. Luke especially is written to a Greek or Gentile Roman audience, people who are not by nature Jews. And so they are experienced. What they look at or what they're used to is they're used to going into the temples. And if you went into the temples, they would try to heal you if you had a sickness. This is something very common. This 
This happened all the time. You would go into that temple, and the priest would come over you, and he would whisper a magic incantation, and you were supposed to get well again, or he'd cut a bird to open, and he'd sprinkle some guts on you. Messy business miracles in those days. Right? You would have these sorts of stories. If you, were, if you were creating a fictional story about Jesus as a healer, you would reasonably you would attach it to something you're used to. And you would expect Jesus, as a, as a Gentile miracle healer, right, to do that, to use those magical incantations. Jesus doesn't do that. If you're writing to a Jewish audience, what would you anticipate a Jewish audience to say Jesus did? Jesus stood over him and he prayed. And yet Jesus doesn't do that either, does he? He stands up in front of this woman and he rebukes the fever by his own power, by his own authority, and the fever leaves. This stands in the face of everything anyone expected, whether we're talking about a Jew or we're talking about a Greek. It's not a great way to convince somebody if you're trying to sell them a bill of goods. It's, in fact, a very poor way to do it. And so what do we have in the New Testament? We have something that is not seen in all of the ancient literature, something that is unique and different than all of the ancient literature, all of the ancient stories. Moreover, what we have within the New Testament is a constant appeal to what we see right here. You saw it. You saw it, Peter says. Christianity is the most easily falsifiable religion out there. We claim there were eyewitnesses, and all they needed in the ancient world was somebody to stand up and say, no, we didn't see that at all. Jesus slipped him a potion. Jesus sprinkled some like, guts on him or something. And whispered incantations. That's all you need, and that's what we don't have. We have Jesus by his own power and authority standing up and saying, listen, you fever, you demon, you wind, you wave, I rebuke you, go, flee, get out of here. Get out of here. And the people who saw it, believed, passed that on. In fact, they believed it so fervently that they went to pyres and to lions, to the torture chamber. We have a story uh, of Peter. We don't know much about Peter's wife. We don't know anything really about his mother-in-law, but there's a story that's handed down uh, that says that Peter was crucified upside down, as as you probably have heard this story before, because he didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified as his Lord was crucified. But the story is that Peter and his wife were actually captured together. And as his wife was taken off, um, it's recorded by Clement of Alexandria uh, that blessed Peter, who saw his own wife being led out to die, rejoiced because of her summons and her return home. And he called to her very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name, saying, O thou, because, you know, they used King James back then, O thou, it's the Lord's language, O thou remember the Lord. Now, I I love my wife, and uh, I love Jesus, uh, but I would find it very difficult to see her led off to die and cry out, don't worry about it, just remember Jesus. That's, That's incredible faith. Something changed that man. Something changed that man. What changed that man? The miracles function then as validation validation of the truth of Jesus' claim that he was the Son of God, that he was the Christ. Secondly, the miracles functioned as a revelation or demonstration of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus comes proclaiming. He comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he demonstrates what this looks like through his miracles. A quote up here from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. It's a much longer quote, but I 
can only fit so much in PowerPoint, and it's just the, the limitations of the thing. So it says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So here it has a sense of, of judgment, of removal of wickedness. The Son of Righteousness, that is righteousness, kind of comes out like the sun. It shines over everything. And we are like young calves, right? healed from the healing of the wings there and and we're just we're leaping and we're in joy we have similar texts in isaiah chapter 2 and zechariah chapter 3 or zechariah 14 zephaniah chapter 3 all throughout the prophets we see this imagery and each one of the prophets tells us a story slightly differently but it always always is about shalom about peace and by peace we don't simply mean there's no more violence between parties There's no more war, there's no more strife, there's no more riots and clamor. It means wholeness. Some of you, as Chuck mentioned here today, and Chuck himself, um, are in a great deal of pain physically. Um, Maybe you're sick, maybe you have some ailments, disabilities. Wholeness means all of that is washed away. Wickedness in all of its form, whether we're talking about enmity between people or whether we're own rebellious physical bodies, all of these things are healed in the kingdom of God. All of these things are restored in the kingdom of God. Now, miracles themselves don't just prove Jesus because we see that miracles are possible from various areas. We read in um, Revelation chapter 13, a beast that rises and is able to bring, um, and so this is prophesying in the future, fire even from heaven. We have Janus and Jambres who were Pharaoh's Priests who were able to make frogs come forth and turn water into blood and cast their sticks down and they become serpents. Those who are in touch with demonic powers are able to do things that are difficult to explain. And for those of you who have been in touch with those dark things, you know that I speak the truth because you've seen them as well. Uh, But what does Jesus do when it comes to miracles? He comes proclaiming the kingdom of God and somebody comes up to him who can't see and the kingdom of God strikes that person and they're healed. The person who is lame, the person who is possessed with a demon, the person who is not whole. And so the way in which he demonstrates the coming of the kingdom of God, he does it via this miracle. Let me show you what the kingdom of God will look like. Let me show you what's going to happen when it comes in its fullness. Let me show you that the words of the prophets are true. And let me show you because I'm going to change you physically right here, right now. And everyone can bear witness to the fact that my teaching is true. And they can see the hope that lies therein. Jesus has confrontations with the Pharisees in various places. But in Luke chapter 11, he's confronted by the Pharisees who claim he's using the power of Satan to cast out Satan. That he's using dark power to cast out dark power. And he says to them this. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what is the purpose of miracles? Miracles validate his words, but they also demonstrate the truth of the kingdom of God coming near. They demonstrate the kingdom of God coming near. Now I say all of those to get to this point, which is quite central and important, and that is this. Miracles themselves were never the point. Notice what Jesus says at the end here. They come to him, 
And they try to keep him from going anywhere. And, and you probably would do that too if you saw a guy who could heal your entire town and cast out demons. Everybody's walking around feeling well again. You might want to keep that guy around. No more Walgreen runs, everybody, right? Praise Jesus. Jesus says, I can't do that. Why? What's so interesting to me about this text, what stood out to me as I read this, because I've, I've read this story, I don't know how many times that I've heard or read this story. But what struck me anew, interesting how the word of God does that, right? What struck me anew this time was that Jesus goes into the house and it would have been plainly obvious that Peter's mother-in-law was ill. I mean, Peter didn't live in like a three-room like bedroom house. Like, I mean, this house was small. He was a fisherman, remember? Like, I mean, there, there was two rooms. He was living in a mansion in those days. So uh, it would have been pretty obvious somebody was sick there. But even if there wasn't, what's interesting here is that Jesus walks in the room. He walks in the house. He finds out he, that Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and he says, well, let me heal her. No, he doesn't. What happens? They entreat Jesus to heal her. Why didn't Jesus volunteer it? What, what continues to be interesting is Jesus, who's got this, like, I mean, who's got like this, like Walgreens in a, in, in a person power, doesn't walk through Capernaum like, bam, you're healed, bam, you're healed. Of course he, like, <laughs> bam, you're healed. He doesn't do these things. Why not? The story is interesting because it, we, we often don't get like full days of Jesus in, in the scriptures. We just get sort of snippets. Uh, but here's a full day. Jesus is in, in, is in the synagogue in the morning. He casts out a demon. I'm sure that caused a row. People went home. They're like, did you see what Jesus did? You got to hear what Jesus did. This guy came in. He taught. He cast out a demon like right in front of us. And then he gets there in the afternoon in, uh, into, into Peter's mother's house or Peter's house. And he heals her mother-in-law. And people whispered, did you hear? He just healed her mother-in-law. He just said, go away, fever. And the fever went away. And then evening, what do we have? Like the house is mobbed. All of these people just run, they're come. They're bringing their sick. They're bringing everybody to Jesus. Jesus didn't go to them. They came to Jesus. They asked Jesus. I, I just find that to be really interesting. And it makes a point that I think is very important. And that is this. Jesus did not have a healing ministry. Jesus did not have a healing ministry. Jesus had a preaching ministry. He said, I must go to these other towns. Why? Right? Why? Because I must preach to them. Now, Jesus uses miracles in various ways, and, and we should notice how he uses his power. Don't, we have to be very careful as we read the text and very, very um, appointed as we read it. Why does Jesus do miracles? He's in, the, he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he tells this one guy with a withered hand, stretch your hand out. Why? Because he wants to heal the guy? Well, probably. He probably loved the guy. It's not like Jesus didn't care about the guy at all. But the point was he wanted to declare the good news. He wanted to confront the Pharisees that he used that miracle to communicate a greater truth. You think that was the only guy in the synagogue that was sick? And Jesus used it to demonstrate parables. He curses the, the, the fig tree and it withers down. Why? So that he can show them, look at I have the power to like kill things. Like I have the opposite of a green thumb. No, it was so that he could teach them something about who Israel was. Right? This is what we see. Or because somebody cries out to him. He's walking down the street and somebody says, Jesus, son of David, 
You know, the ten lepers call from a distance, Jesus, heal us, and Jesus does it. He has mercy upon them, but he does not go to heal. He doesn't say when they come to him, hey, Jesus, we'd like you to stay here. Well, no, listen, I can't because, listen, there's a lot of hungry people in Israel, and I need to feed them all. Me who can make food appear by just praying over it. I need to feed them all. And he didn't say to them, listen, I need, there's a lot of sick people, there's a lot of mentally ill, there's a lot of demon-possessed, I need to go heal all these people. No, he didn't. He said, I need to go, I need to go and preach. And that leads us, I think, to two very necessary applications for today. The first point is this, that Jesus did not have a healing ministry. Correlating to that, I would say the apostles did not have a healing ministry Peter goes through the gate beautiful, and a man says, heal me. And Peter says, silver or gold, well, he's begging for money. And Peter says, silver or gold, I don't have, but I say, get up and, and, and walk. And he heals it. You think that was the only person begging at the gate beautiful? Pete, Paul is walking through Macedonia, and there's a girl behind him shouting, hey, listen, this is, these people are speaking the truth of God because she has a demon in her, and the demon is recognizing the truth. And finally... It says, we don't know how long this all went on, but finally, Paul casts it out because she's annoying him. Because she's annoying him. What a weird thing. Like, if you have the power to cast out demons, I mean, I would be like, like, blasting things all the time. Why? Like, we have to just stop and wonder, why? And why is this? Why is this? Because the point is the preaching of the word, which brings us to a very important point, and that is this. If Jesus and Paul and Peter and the other great apostles did not have healing ministries, why do you think those guys on TV do? Why do you think the majority, and I say the vast majority, last time I looked it was nine of the ten books on the Christian bestseller uh, lists were written by people who teach this kind of garbage. Not necessarily in those books, but when you go to their church or you look at their other books, same thing's going on. Right? We want miracles. What did, what did Paul say? Uh, Jews desire signs, and Greeks want wisdom, but we preach Christ. Crucified. See, there's a misplaced priority in the vast amount of things that we are getting from the Christian world. And it is signs, wonders, prophecy, like all these kinds of things. These things are very splashy. They sell books, baby, right? What are we told to hunger for? We're told to hunger for the gospel. Now, am I saying you shouldn't pray for healing? I am absolutely not saying that. But we have elders, and there'll be one down front here, and we'll call more if we need more. And our elders will anoint you in, with oil, and they will pray over you for your healing, just as it says in James chapter 5. We keep that, and we believe that. God heals people. That happens. But he doesn't heal everybody, does he? No, he doesn't. Now, the question is, of course, why? Let's say you are the sorriest sack of human being in this room today. I mean, you are in pain from your head to your toe, and you come forward, and Jack and... I don't know who else is here today. Randy, there you are. Well, he's playing bass. We can't, get, we can't lose him. Well, he'll, For this, he'll put the bass down. We got Jack and Randy down here, and they anoint you with oil, and they, I mean, they, and they like, 
whap you in the head like Benny Hinn and you fall over, baby. You're just gone. And you stand up, I'm healed. Guess what? 20 years later, you're still dead. Right? You're still dead. Do you want me to tell you when I will be healed? I'll tell you when I will be healed. I will be healed when I find this verse. (laughs) For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And what per- when, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come, then shall come, to pass the saying which is true, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin. Why? Because the wages of our sin is death. That that's what we get to inherit. That we are creatures of sin and we are creatures of death. And the power of the sin is the law. Why? Because when you finally come in contact with God's word and you realize, oh my goodness, I've been breaking like every single ten commandment, both in my mind and in my body, the power of sin of law leads us to death. But thanks be to God, the scripture says, thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ and that is not going to come until my eyes close in death or Jesus comes again because in between that time all I'm doing is keeping sickness at bay I'm just keeping it back until finally it comes and takes me it's not until the mortal puts on immortality it's not until we stand before the living God resurrected with the glory that is seen in Jesus Christ's resurrection that we will receive the kind of healing that matters the kind of healing that lasts because we can heal you today and you get struck by a semi tomorrow right and so it's not that healing doesn't matter it's not that healings don't happen it's that it misses the point The point is the gospel. The point is the good news. The point is repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand and get ready for that reality because it's coming. It's coming. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And so that's really good news. It's incredibly good news. Because it means that whether God, uh, whether when the elders pray over you, if they pray over you, if you come forward and you want them to pray over you, and you're healed, that's, that's great. We can rejoice with it. Um, but that's only temporary victory. And that's a good one, but it's temporary. Just like we read last week, as, as the disciples are casting out demons and they're healing everybody, and Jesus says, that's great, man. That's awesome. But you're rejoicing over the wrong thing. Rejoice over this. Your names are written in heaven. God knows your name, and he is coming to resurrect you. The point of it is that no matter what happens in this life, whether it's health or wealth or wisdom or it's sickness and disease and struggle or death itself, death does not have the final word. Because through Christ, victory comes. Which leads us to the very important next point, the one I'm going to belabor until you get tired and leave. And that is this. Preach. Preach. Whether it's at a podium or it's with your little ones 
or whether it's because you drive a bus or whether it's because you sell TVs at Best Buy or whether it's whatever it is that you do, find a way to preach. Let me get controversial here because let me suggest to you that the servant is not above its master, nor can the clay say to the potter, you shall make me for thus and thus purpose. If Jesus says, behold, I can't stay with you and be your, your, uh, your living Walgreens, I can't do that because I need to go and preach. And if, let's just say, theoretically, at the end of the book of Matthew, as he's ascending, he says, I send you in all the world to, 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 to teach them everything that I have told you and to make disciples in my name to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? If those things were, let's say, to happen, oh, perhaps that should be what we are about as well. But we live in a generation right now that's kind of scaring me. I think that just happens as you're old because I remember people saying that like when I was a kid. So take that for what it is. But we have had this sort of vast pendulum swing. So we had for a long time what we call rice Christians. You heard of this phrase before, rice Christians? What this meant is that you would have missionaries, they would go over to Africa, and they would say things like, or, you know, anywhere in the world, it can happen here. Um, in fact, it often does happen here. We just don't hand out rice. Check under your seats, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you would offer something, and people would come to church for it. So you would say to hungry people, hey, listen, if you come to church, we'll feed you afterwards. And they say, I'm a Christian, Right? Converted them. Rice Christians, we have that all the time. Only now we use... What do we use? Coffee. Shut it. (laughs) Criticizing me like that. (laughs) If you came for the coffee, well, that was a fair choice. I understand that. We use all kinds of things to do it, don't we? People come to church for all kinds of reasons. To become for the word of God. Now we have something different. Instead of, instead of the rice Christians, we, we, we don't have that as much as we used to. We still have it, but not as much. What we have now is social activism. Boy, I, I tell you what, if we put on the sign we're raising money to, uh, uh, to, to dig wells in Africa or we're going to stop sex slavery uh, or we're going to uh, diversify the races of the Oscars, man, people will lose their minds, Right? All over Facebook. Look at what this church is doing. Look how great they are. Look at what they're doing to help people. What are we told to do? Preach. I'm very proud of some of the missions that we, that we I, I was very impressed when, we, when um, Barbara and the mission team and Judy and, and Brian brought in IDES and I talked to the guy from IDES, the International Disaster Emergency Service. The S was the thing that was got me. I knew emergency was the S. And how he was telling me about we partner with churches we partner with churches. We don't just dr- drop in an area and give a bunch of water out and say, and hope that they'll ask us why we're doing such nice things. No, when you give somebody something for free, they say thanks and run until, in case you want to take it back, right? I mean, this is what people do with free things. No, they, they come and they proclaim the gospel and they show that the kingdom is coming through their generosity. I really appreciate and I don't know all of our missions uh, as well as many of you do because I haven't been here that long, but I, I'm very good friends with... Um, I'm friends with uh, Craig Gates, uh, Christ Mission in Yucatan, uh, with his son Jared. And I know that he is raising up preachers and planting churches. And that's what we're called to do. We're not called to do anything fancy, right? God does the fancy stuff. We're called to proclaim the gospel. Does that mean we shouldn't help people? Of course it doesn't mean we shouldn't help people, right? Don't, don't do that to me. Don't Facebook, like, quote me and, and, like, you know, 
get me all kinds of bad press, right? What did Jesus do? He's walking along and somebody cries out to him, hey, help me. And Jesus looks at him and has mercy and he helps him. Listen, there's some guy and says, listen, I haven't eaten in three days as you're walking by and you say, sorry, pal, and you walk away. Dude, come on, right? Do I need to preach a sermon about why that's wrong? Please. But if all you do is go and buy him a burger and say, hey, bro, I hope things get better for you and you don't tell him the gospel of Jesus Christ, what have you done? You fed him for a day and his soul is still lost. Right? And so we must, must, must preach the truth. And I love how Jesus gives so freely. Why does he give so freely? He gives so freely because he's not afraid of not having enough. His ruthless trust in the provision of God allows him to not fear tomorrow. I implore you to have that same thing. His love for people is so outrageous and so overflowing that when somebody calls and says help from a distance and they're, they're, they have limbs falling off like lepers, you look at them and, and it's, it's disgusting, right? I mean, it's a terrible disease, disfiguring pus Filled people. Jesus looks on them and doesn't turn away. He says, I love you, and he heals them. That's great. But his goal is to make it to all of the cities to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And I implore you to do the same. I'm going to show a video clip here. Um, I find this video clip really interesting. I, I, uh, it's a video clip of uh, Penn Gillette. I don't know if you know who he is. He is a comedian uh, who is quite funny if not a little bit crass so be warned if you type that into youtube um but he is a renowned very well-known atheist and um I, I i listen to atheists all the time and whenever he's on i know i'm gonna laugh while i'm listening to the atheist so it's kind of fun so i like to to click on his things and so i wanted to share this with you for just a moment and then um we'll close uh, close with the invitation song I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks and you know sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. And then he said, "I brought this for you." And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Uh, He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not 
getting eternal life or whatever. And you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like your show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave you that book. That's all I wanted to say. I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was fascinating. I thought he put it better than I often hear Christians put it. You know, you are not, uh, you are not in charge of saving anyone. You aren't in charge of, of making the world a better place. You aren't in charge of, of making a difference, as we say. You're in charge with planting seeds. You plant the gospel in somebody's life. You hand them a Bible, you're kind. You say, Jesus loves you. I don't know, whatever it is you are capable of doing, you plant that seed and God does the rest. God makes it grow, God waters it, God brings new people into that person's life. You might say one thing, you might do one thing and it seems like the most, I mean that guy probably didn't think we would be showing it here today this morning. He just handed a Gideon like New Testament to, to Penn Gillette and, and here, we are, here we are talking about it. What you do matters because that little thing that you do, God can take and save somebody by it. He can change somebody by it. I can heal somebody by it. And so this morning as we wrap this all up and we go forth, we go forth. People driven by the love of God. People whose life goal it is, as we say here, to share Jesus. That is what we do, share Jesus. People who are called to share Jesus. What do you need to do today? What do you need to do today? If you need uh, to be prayed over because you're struggling, um, we're going to have the elder down front. Uh, we'll be happy to pray with you. I don't want you to leave this place without hearing that gospel message, though. God wants to save you. God wants to, to come into your life, and he wants to give you eternal life, and he wants to change and turn everything around for you. And if you don't know that, if you have not accepted Jesus, if you've never been washed in the waters of baptism, we'll hang around here for about an hour until we'll fill it, and we'll get you baptized today. Like, 
Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of change. Today is the day when we live for Jesus and then we share Jesus. Amen? If you've got a decision to make, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song.